0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Hey, friends. Thanks for joining our podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called Patreon.com slash BP show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash bpshow. patreon.com slash bpshow.
2: Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at youtube.com slash thebillpressshow.
3: That's right, The Bill Press Show on this Wednesday, August 23rd, 2017. Good morning, good morning. Igor Volsky filling in for Bill Press the morning after the craziest, unhinged, most maddening rally I think Trump has given to date. Just a week after the attacks of Charlottesville and and Trump eventually calling for unity, The president came out and threw out all the red meat he could think of. We'll go through all of that crazy audio and then ask, is it time for the media, for all of us to be calling Trump a white nationalist, a white supremacist? I mean, I'll go through the list of dog whistles Trump threw out to his crazy base and i think there's no denying it i think that if there was ever a question from the very beginning of his campaign when he retweeted racist memes when he pretended not to know who david duke was when he initially wouldn't renounce or denounce david duke all the way up to today when uh, in the aftermath of, of charlottesville he cuddled nazis well, he went even further at the rally last night. We'll get into all of that with an amazing lineup of guests, truly. But first...
2: This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple
4: of other stories for you on this Wednesday morning. lot of controversy over the Confederate monuments, Igor. Yes. In fact, this new controversy is a particularly unique one. It doesn't actually involve a monument at all. But it does involve the city of Charlottesville. So, on September 2nd, the University of Virginia is set to open uh, their football season against uh, William & Mary at home in Charlottesville, Mm -hmm. right? And ESPN had scheduled one of their announcers, one of their very talented college football announcers, to call the game. One problem. Yes. The announcer's name? Robert Lee. Ooh very mm. very close to Not robert e lee great. the confederate general however if you're asking me i think that this is a bit too sensitive on espn's part uh additionally the additional note that is worth noting here is that robert lee is an asian american man Oh. Uh, so the equivalence between robert lee the announcer and robert E. lee the general to me isn't exactly entirely clear yeah right Uh, However, they have pulled them off. ESPN has released a statement, said, quote, In that moment, it felt right to all parties. It's a shame (laughs) that this is even a topic of conversation, and we regret that who calls uh, play-by-play for a football game has become an issue. It sounds like ESPN made this an issue.
3: Yeah. no one else. Yeah. uh, I feel bad for Robert Lee.
4: Let's say in the television world, Variety has released the top paid actors in television.
3: Yes. Do you have any guesses? George Clooney. George Clooney, I don't think he's really on television right now. Oh, on so. television, on television. Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, this is oh. just
4: on TV. Oh, In fact, goodness. you know, I'll start with an easy one. Yeah. Uh, how about talk show host? This can be late night, daytime. Oh, oh Steve Harvey. Steve Harvey, Steve Harvey. He's like three shows. Steve Harvey did not
3: make this list, oh, believe it or not. Oh, i really bad at this. Okay. Uh,
4: however, <laughs> give, me Ellen, one. give me somebody. Ellen DeGeneres did top the list of the most paid talk show hosts. She makes annually, this is an estimate, $50 million, Ellen DeGeneres. $50 Ooh. million. Judge Judy comes oh, that's in right. second.
3: She's still there.
4: $47 million. Matt Lauer, Katy Perry, and Kelly Ripa round out the top five for top paid talk show hosts according to... Oh, Variety. what about Ryan Seacrest? Ryan Seacrest. Ryan Seacrest. Let's see if he's on here. Ryan Seacrest. He's everywhere as well. Yes. Ryan Seacrest does just Barely cracked the top ten. In fact, I think he may be eleven at fifteen million.
3: He works so hard, though. I don't understand. (laughs) It's unfair. As far as Kelly has one show.
4: I know. As far as comedians go, The Big Bang Theory. It's all the top five. All of the actors from The Big Bang Theory. I don't know any of their names. And as far as dramas go, Robert De Niro. He's starring in a new Amazon project. Seven hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars per episode.
3: Man.
2: On your radio, on TV, and online, this is the Bill Press Show. That's
3: right, Bill Press Show, this Wednesday, August 23rd, 2017. Good morning, good morning. Igor Volsky of the Center for American Progress Action Fund and the Thinking Cab Podcast filling in for Bill Press on this really, you know, very, I think hmm infuriating sad morning uh the morning after trump's big rally in arizona it's a state where the president launched his campaign really with the kind of red meat against the media against progressives and democrats that we've become accustomed to but last night came in the aftermath of the attack in Charlottesville of a tough week for the president uh, in uniting the country, something he's failed to do time and time again. And so when we heard this rally was happening, we kind of all scratched our heads and said, why is he doing a base rally, a re-election rally, whose entire purpose is to fire up his most vocal supporters, as the country has been torn apart by the events of the last week. Why do this? I mean, some people even thought, well, now with uh, General Kelly as his chief of staff, maybe we'll hear a different Trump. Maybe we'll see something else. And that, of course, didn't happen. I, I don't know where to start. I have a lot of audio of Trump from last night. Um I spent uh, I spent a lot of time listening to and watching his remarks reading the transcript of his remarks I just couldn't I couldn't believe that an American president could say the words that he said and could sound the way that he sounded uh, let's start with what has really become Trump's uh, kind of bread and butter at these rallies, uh, and that is, of course, his attacks on the on the media. And he's done this so often that when we hear it now, it just kind of washes over us. But I, I got to say, last night, I think, the way I heard it, was Trump taking it to a whole new level. Uh, here he is calling the media dishonest.
5: The very dishonest media, those people right up there with all the cameras.
3: I mean, sustained booing here. Uh, and this, this came during a riff where the president defended his Charlottesville uh, uh, remarks, the, the three different, three or four different statements that he made, calling his own words perfect.
5: There were two statements in one news conference, the words were perfect. They only take out anything they can think
3: of. And for the most part, all they do is complain. The president claimed and read off uh, from his statements. He, he says his words were perfect. It's the media who took them out of context. And in a riff about how dishonest the media was, Trump took out a piece of paper with his Charlottesville remarks And began to read off of it those Saturday remarks, those first remarks where he said that uh, there's that both sides are to blame and that there's violence on both sides. You remember these are the remarks that shocked the nation.
5: You had a group on one side that was bad, and you had a group on the other side that was also very violent. And nobody wants to say that, but I'll say it right now: you had a group, you had a group on the other side that came charging in without a permit and they were very very violent.
3: Now this is him from Tuesday, right Jamie? This is these are the Tuesday remarks you just played. I have to check my calendar because yeah, I think... just,
4: it's just such a rapid rate here. Yeah, Tuesday Yeah, those right? uh, those those were,
3: those were the one. That's his follow-up to the follow-up. His in his re- initial remarks, Trump, you'll remember, Trump did say that those those very very similar to what we heard here that both sides are to blame. Now at the rally when he was reading from a piece of paper, about his Saturday remarks he read up to the both sides comment omitted at the rally for his supporters both sides literally skipped that portion of his prepared remarks and then moved on so so last night in order to prove how dishonest the media was in reporting his comments Donald Trump literally omitted the most controversial part of his statement from his supporters. I mean, it was it was a, absolutely insane because of course, it undermined his entire point. Now, um, you know, he came to this rally. Under the under a cloud of of, of suspicion under um, with poll numbers showing that the overwhelming majority of Americans uh, had deep questions about his Charlottesville response, couldn't understand why it took the president so long to condemn neo-Nazis and the KKK about why he had to paint this false equivalence between the the neo-Confederates, that came out to Charlottesville to try to protect a Confederate monument.
4: In fact, that Washington Post ABC News poll precisely says just among U.S. adults, 56 percent disapprove of Donald Trump's response to what happened in Charlottesville. Overwhelmingly, 84 percent Democrats, 55 percent independents and 19 percent Republicans.
3: Yeah. So this, that's how he came into the arena. That's the context for the speech. And yet (laughs) here he is pardoning or announcing that he's going to pardon Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who was the Phoenix sheriff for many, many years. And in, in that county terrorized the Latino community. Here he is talking about. Sheriff Joe, let's listen to him, and then I'll tell you exactly who Sheriff Joe is.
5: He should have had a jury, but you know what? I'll make a prediction. I think he's going to be just fine, okay?
4: This he, is he went on to say he wouldn't do it tonight, but this is going to happen. This
3: is going to happen to a guy who has now been convicted. Of, um, of, of of obstructing uh, the court process there, but was found by a judge to use racial profiling in the way he stopped people in Arizona, uh, would do just all kinds of egregious things in his prisons and in his jails to undocumented immigrants, to Latinos who he put in those prisons and would pull over in Arizona just because of the color of their skin. I mean, this isn't something that's up for debate. This is what Joe Arpaio, the former sheriff, brags about and what a federal judge found that he did. Based on racial stereotypes, he put people in prison. You know, last night before the speech, when there were rumors that the, that the president could pardon this open, open, openly racist white nationalist sheriff at this rally, uh, the, the, the mayor of Phoenix, Greg Stanton, went on MSNBC to explain to America exactly what uh, Joe Arpaio did to the Latino community, undocumented, documented, the Latino community of Phoenix, Arizona. Here's Mayor Stanton.
4: What he was facing here locally was a trial in which he was accused of and ultimately found guilty of systematically violating the civil rights of our Latino residents. They couldn't even go to the grocery store without fear of being pulled over under false pretenses and facing serious criminal action. They couldn't even drop their kids off at school without fear of having their lives turned upside down. And what the court found is that he did that simply based on the color of people's skins, not based upon uh, the Merits.
3: This is the guy that Trump promised to pardon at the rally last night. A week after Charlottesville, a week after, and during a week when he came out, came under intense criticism for not going after these white nationalist supremacist pieces of his base firmly and strongly enough from Republicans, from Democrats from the overwhelming majority of Americans. He went to this rally and he announced to the overwhelming applause of his crowd that he's going to pardon an openly racist sheriff who terrorized Latinos. I'll make a prediction. I think he's going to be just fine, okay? (laughs) I mean, what do you do with that? At what point do you say, well, Trump is being just so smart the way he's just firming up his base. It's just a good political strategy. At what point do you move from that to this guy, the our president, the president of the United States, is himself a white nationalist supremacist racist?
4: You talk about priorities is, is what Donald Trump should be focusing on right now. Last night he made some ridiculous claim that they've signed 50 pieces of legislation, most of which have been purely symbolic, have not actually done anything to help Americans. Yeah. The what is it? The, the lost minority, the the unspoken, silent majority that they that they had during the, the campaign. The forgotten trail. American. The forgotten American. That's right. This is not what Trump should be focusing on right now. <laughs> Listen, neither you nor I want him in this office. But I think, you know, when we talk about such sensitive topics like North Korea, when we talk about potential world wars, we want to at least have someone that is fairly capable in governing this country. Right now, we do not have that in the White House.
3: No. At all. I mean, and speaking, if you want to talk about foreign threats, he had this weird line last night about North Korea that finally Kim, Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea, is going to respect... America, that now he respects America and Trump respects the fact that he respects America. I mean, it, I've never, I mean, I don't know. You know, I didn't spend, frankly, during the campaign, I didn't spend a lot of time listening to Trump rallies. It was very difficult to do. After he won and he started doing these rallies after he became the president, I didn't really listen to them all that much. I read about them, but it was kind of too painful. But last night, I thought, you know, this guy's operating in a different environment. The context of this is so different. let me let me actually give it a listen. Let me watch this full thing. And I gotta say I, it was it was incredibly difficult. It was infuriating at parts, um to a point where I thought, well, maybe I'll just maybe I should just turn off the TV. Maybe I should go get another job. I mean, it, I, I don't know <laughs> what to matter. say, Jamie. It was like, it, it's like your body f- 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 fills with rage. It's like uh, when it
4: rejects uh, it, a poisonous toxin. Exactly. That's yeah.
3: exactly what it's like.
4: Yeah. Um, Can I play Don Lemon's
1: uh, initial response?
3: Yeah, this is Don Lemon right after the speech uh, on
1: CNN. What we have witnessed was a total eclipse of the facts. Someone who came out on stage and lied directly to the American people. And left things out that he said in an attempt to rewrite history, especially when it comes to Charlottesville. He's unhinged. It's embarrassing. And I don't mean for us, the media, because he went after us, but for the country, this is who we elected president of the United States. How eerie is that music in the background?
3: It's so Like
4: normally it's like that's the gates of heaven opening. That music symbolized the gates of hell opening. In Arizona last night. I don't
3: know if you have this sound, but James Clapper, who was the former uh, director of national intelligence under Obama, joined Don Lemon. I think in, in, in an hour after Lemon made those remarks, uh, and I don't know if you got if you guys are familiar with Clapper, but he's like a pretty stoic guy. He's really a straight shooter. I mean, he's like an intelligence professional. He he's not a political guy, really. Um, it, it, he looked straight at the camera last night on Don Lemon's show and said. You know, I'm I'm terrified uh, of this president and I'm terrified that he has access to the nuclear codes. Uh, And I got to say, you know, hearing Jim James Clapper, of all people say that really (laughs) sent chills down my spine and, and made it clear that that this thing is real, that we're not exaggerating the consequences here. That we're not, you know, this isn't like a, a, a political effort to frame Trump in a certain way. I mean, this is a incredibly unhinged, insecure president who is not governed by reason, who is not governed by logic, and whose actions are entirely unpredictable and could be triggered by God knows what. I mean, we... You know, we are truly, truly living here um, in incredibly dangerous times. The other piece of, of Trump's remarks last night that, to me, really symbolized—and it's why I, I started the show with the question of when will it be time to start calling Trump himself a white nationalist, a, a racist—and I'll, I'll ask this question of, of, our, of our first guest— uh, Nina Turner, President of our Revolution, who is coming up on the program. When is it time to start calling him a racist and a white nationalist and openly pinning that label on him? Because as you, as you know, the President has a long, his, a long, long history of racial animus going all the way back to the early 1970s when the Trump company had to settle with the Department of Justice for not renting or selling their apartments to African Americans, to the late 1980s when Donald Trump, private citizen Trump, took a full-page ad uh, in the, I believe it was the New York Times, calling for the execution of five African American men for raping Uh, allegedly raping. It turned out later uh, that they were exonerated, uh, a jogger in Central Park. Donald Trump still stands by that ad, despite the fact that DNA evidence exonerated uh, those men, to all of the rumors that we heard and and accusations of racial discrimination in Trump's casinos and businesses, to, of course, the kind of campaign that that he ran, starting with calling Mexicans rapists and drug dealers and building a wall and the Muslim ban. I mean, the list goes on and on to, of course, bringing people onto his staff, everyone from Steve Bannon to Steve Miller to Jeff Sessions to whatever the heck his first name is, Gorka, uh, people with long, long, long records of racial animus towards non-white people, Um this to me, this rally to me was really the capstone to a lifetime, literally, of racial animus towards non-white people. I mean, we have to talk about this.
4: Well, you mentioned that ad right back. This was in the New York Daily News on New May first, nineteen eighty-nine, yeah. around the Central uh, Central Park Five uh, case. Just an excerpt from this in in bold letters, it reads, bring back the death penalty, bring back our police. Uh, And then in the smaller text, quote, I do not. This is Trump. I do not think so. I want to hate these muggers and murderers. They should be forced to suffer. And when they kill, they should be executed for their crimes. They must serve as examples so that others will think long and hard before committing a crime or an act of violence. This is the Trump that has always existed. Yeah. May 1st, 1989. And we saw it on full display last night. And this is also what Sheriff Joe is.
3: Ex- it's exactly we're what Talk about Joe that is. language. Sheriff
4: Joe Opio used to have his uh, prisoners walk out in public in pink jumpsuits to humiliate them, picking up trash in horrible living conditions when they were housed inside. They were in tents, in hot tents. This is Trump's dream. Yeah. And he has finally realized it. Yeah. A racist, awful, bigot-filled world of hate.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And he, he, it, it was on such extreme display last night, Jamie, both the racism piece of it, which we'll, we'll get into uh, in a moment, but also the, the bashing of the media in a way I just haven't heard him say before. I mean, he said things like the media doesn't want to make America great. The media hates this country. The media is dishonest. Um, the media is responsible for giving a platform to right-wing extremists <laughs> and to hate. It made you think, like, is there a horrible story that's coming that he's trying to fend off and laying a foundation um, of attack for against the media? Is he looking for some kind of exit ramp off of this whole presidency thing? I mean, he literally threw Everything he had against the wall uh, to make sure it's stuck to a point where it, it, it kind of became not not only kind of too much, but just un- unbelievable. It made you made you think, like, what what else is going on here? Why? Why is this at such a heightened point? Why? Why is this so incredibly extreme? I mean, he he must know it's uh, on some level he's not, as a president, even a president who's running for re-election six months into his term, he's not just speaking to that small, hardcore Trump voter, but he's speaking to all of America. And so why he would go so far, I think— to some degree remains a mystery and maybe we'll find out um in the in the days ahead by
4: the way we are on twitter at bp show tweet at us at bp show igor of course is at igor volsky i'm at j benson dc tweet at us let us know i just put this tweet out here which part of trump's phoenix rally last night disgusted you the most Mm. let's talk about the racism the hatred the bigotry I want to hear your comments. We might read them on air.
3: Yeah, no, let let us know. Uh, and also let us know is it time or maybe we're past this? Maybe I'm I'm just late to the party. <laughs> Very possible. Is it time to openly label in, you know, mainstream conversation Trump a white nationalist, racist, supremacist? Is there what's the dividing line? Is there any light left between Trump and Steve Bannon or Trump and some, some of the other more extreme uh, white nationalists like, like David Duke and others. Um, you know, I don't know if you, if you heard uh, uh, yesterday on, on the Daily podcast, the New York Times podcast, the Daily, they had an interview with a guy who um, came out of a white nationalist family and was really groomed to take over the white nationalist mantle uh, later in college left uh, that ideology, Uh, but he talked about what it was like growing up a white nationalist and what white nationalists see in Trump, both during his campaign and in this latest Charlottesville episode, how they hear what he says and what it means for them to finally have a president who not only shares their worldview, but also gives them cover. Cover to march, cover to hate, and cover to recruit. Um, it's scary, scary stuff. And it gets to a place where it's not just rhetoric, it's not just words, it's not just disappointing, but it's really and truly dangerous when you have a president condoning those kinds of beliefs and condoning the um, expression of anxiety that white nationalists, uh, uh, you know, kind of grow out of. We saw, for instance, after the election, a huge spike uh, in hate crimes. Um, and that continues. Of
4: all types. Of all types. African-American, and that anti-Semitism, Latinos. If you're a person of color in this country... President Trump doesn't respect you.
3: Oh, no. President Trump definitely. Even if he President trotted out Ben
4: Carson him. at the beginning of his Phoenix rally last night and tried to heal the crowds. Yeah. By the way, Richard Spencer, the uh, probably the most high profile white nationalist at this point, was tweeting, live tweeting Trump's rally last night. Uh, first tweet, Trump just forcefully denounced Antifa strong, the uh, anti-fascist group. Uh, I don't think that actually happened. Don't think that actually happened. Uh, But then this is the the real kicker. Richard Spencer tweeting, Trump has never denounced the alt-right, nor will he. (laughs) So that's the message that they get from their racist white supremacist in chief.
3: Yeah. And that's the message they get not only in rhetoric, you see, but also in policy. And this is really, really critical, is that for a long time, and this is still the case, white nationalists are very much... Um, weaving themselves into and have been for years into the Republican Party in the sense that um, there's this there's this belief among white nationalists that there's a lot of controversy that comes with the label of white nationalist. And so if you can insert white nationalist policies into the Republican platform without calling it white nationalism, that you can see your beliefs in policy and in play. And the clearest example of that, of course, is immigration. And this belief that you got to keep immigrants out of the country, particularly non-white immigrants out of the country, um, it's something the Republican Party has believed for years, and it's something the the white supremacist, white nationalist fringe has been lobbying for, and you actually have, um these kind of covert white nationalists or undercover white nationalists who run for office as Republicans under um uh, using these 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 immigration platforms and these em- immigration beliefs to insert themselves into mainstream politics and of course last night in Phoenix, which is ground zero really for a lot of this immigration debate um Trump made news by saying <laughs> that not only is he still going to build the wall, but he may even shut down the government if necessary to build that wall. Here he is in Phoenix.
5: Build that wall. Now, the obstructionist Democrats would like us not to do it, but believe me, if we have to close down our government, we're building that wall.
3: Yeah, if we have to close down the government, we're building. The wall to keep the mexicans out priorities man priorities yeah exactly all right we're going to take a quick break here we're back with nina turner she's the president of our revolution we're going to talk about this rally uh what it says about trump what it says about our country and how do we move on from here quick break i'm igor volsky filling in for bill press do stay with us
5: he didn't do it on time Why did it take a day? He must be a racist. It took a day.
2: Download our podcast. Search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show.
3: All right, Bill Press Show coming to you live this Wednesday, August 23rd, 2017. We are, uh, with great horror, reviewing the Trump speech out in Phoenix and asking, is it time now to label Trump a white nationalist supremacist? Jamie, what are the people saying?
4: Yeah, we're on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. Janice says, what disturbed me most about Trump's rally was the audience going along with his lies and rhetoric. Mm, Yeah. Just like a traditional campaign rally there. Uh, Mm. Local milk person on Twitter says that part between when it began and when it ended uh, and Robin... On Twitter says, everything. He is a bigot and mentally unfit.
3: Yeah, yeah, that that he is. Uh, Nina Turner is the president of our revolution. She joins us now in studio at Nina Turner. By the way, you're probably following her, but if you're not, do give her a follow. Nina, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for for being here on this crazy, crazy Crazy morning. It's interesting, you
6: know, before we <laughs> we're trying went to get live, together. right? We're trying to you know, I, I want Rod Serling to come out and, and say and, and, you know, you're in the Twilight yeah. Zone, but it hasn't happened. <laughs> it hasn't or happened. Or even more recently, you know, Ashton Kutcher, his show is not on anymore, but you're probably too young to remember <laughs> <part>. <laughs> But I'm just waiting on him to pop out too. Ashton, Ashton where are you, Ashton? darling? We need you. So Yeah, yeah. no
3: longer one of those high paid T V people, right, Jamie, <laughs> as you were just saying earlier. So yeah. Real. yeah. So, you know, let me ask you this. So I listened to the speech. Yeah. And then I went back and I read the speech Mm -hmm. because I just wanted to make sure. Tortured. I want to be tortured (laughs) and I want to make sure I heard everything right. Yeah. Yeah. And what really shocked me is. A week after Trump came under so much criticism from Democrats, from Republicans for not condemning the most racist elements of the conservative movement harshly enough. Yes. He goes out there and not only predicts that he'll pardon Joe Arpaio. He did. And he said he has nothing to worry about. He said nothing to worry about at all. Um does the typical kind of red meat thing that we hear in a lot of in a lot of rallies. But I also think he he went a step further and I identified I want to read some of this to you. Sure. Six instances yes. where I believe if you line up David Duke or Richard Spencer or whoever the white nationalist of the day is with these comments, they're going to really be indistinguishable. George so Wallace. George Wallace. Yeah. So here's here's what he says. Here's some examples. They are taking away our history and our heritage. We are throwing them, this is him about immigrants, we are throwing them out of the country or we're, or we're putting them the hell fast in jail. Um, uh, are we building the southern wall? Uh, we're building the wall. Now the obstructionist Democrats would like us not to do it, but believe me, we have to close down the government. We, if we have to close down the government, we're building the wall. Now, here, is, here, here are the two examples that, to me, sound like they could have come out of the mouth of a Richard Spencer. Yes. So, he says, so in Washington, we're taking power out of the hands of donors and special interests and putting that power back into the hands of the people that voted for us, okay, mm-hmm. for us.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Here he is. They're trying to take away our culture, our history, and our weak leaders, they do it overnight. These things, talking about the statues, have been there for 150 years, 100 years. They go back to a university and it's gone. But, Nina, this idea of they're trying to take away our history, right. our heritage. Yes. Who are the they? Who are the they? And I, it's who, no longer an open all, question. The yeah, exactly. Who are? Yeah. Exactly. Who? Right. Oh, you are. Right. Who? Yeah. And only yes. serving the people who voted for him. Not serving all Americans. All people, which is politics one one. Right. once you win, yeah. I mean, you
6: know, you, you you're running, but once you win, you are the president of the entire country or the mayor of an entire city or the governor of an entire state. You gotta put all that other stuff aside That's right. until That's right. you run again. And you know, Mr Trump has not he can't get out of, of campaign mode. He just cannot do it. He really maligned immigrants. I mean he's painting immigrants as all Criminals, the stereotypes, lock them up, throw them out of our country. And when people have when people have intensity in that way, when they believe that there is an other to blame their problems on, you know, that's a powder cave waiting to. explode, oh, yeah. And he's just throwing fire on it. He's not bringing us together. So he says one thing. I mean, as you know, he methodically went through what he said on Monday compared to what he said on Tuesday in, in, in terms of Charlottesville and blame the media. hmm. So he takes no responsibilities for his actions, and then he goes to that rally. I don't know if we want to call it a dog whistle or a bullhorn.
3: But, but I mean, it's like at this point, it, but literally saying it. I yes. mean, it's not even whistling. He he did articulate it. And, and, and again, it. it's just unconscionable
6: that he would just lump all immigrants in together and overlay on an entire group of people whether they're from you know some places in Africa Mm because we don't talk a lot about Mm -hmm. you know African immigrants uh people from Haiti uh people from Mexico you know you name it but immigrants and even some immigrants from Europe he just overlaid. And so when people think about, though, criminals, they're not thinking they're thinking about immigrants of color. Yeah. They're thinking about our
3: Hispanic sisters and brothers and other people of color. Are we are we at a turning point now? I mean, after Charlottesville, after this speech, which is just so filled with 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 racism, with bigotry, with hate. Are we to to see this president through a different kind of post Charlottesville prism now? I don't know what prism we can see him through. I mean. But this, would you be this, comfortable? I mean, I, you know, in media appearances you make and et cetera. Yeah. Would you be comfortable in calling him openly a racist, a white nationalist? I mean, how far I, should we be going at this point? I'm not comfortable going
6: that far because we shouldn't be. that's that's Those words are serious. Yeah. You know, it's that's a serious indictment. Yeah. And we don't wanna desensitize people to what it really means to be a white supremacist, a neo-Nazi, uh KKK inspired. But I will say that this president is patently God, I'm trying to think of some PG words yeah, that I can right. say on the yeah. morning show. <laughs> he is irresponsible in every single way, and he's hitting that wall really, really strong. The reason why I'm so cautious Mm because as a historian, Mm -hmm. you know, I teach African-American history at Cuyahoga Community College in in Cleveland. You know, I teach my students about this and and organized hatred and the terrorism that black folks had to face in the South. That the KKK was born, you know, in the 1860s, right during that after after the Civil War. And when I say terrorized, killed, maimed, burned down houses— of African-American folks just simply because they were black, lynchings. And a lot of folks at that time, they knew even though they wore the white sheet and they covered up their faces, people knew that some of these folks were in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Some of these folks were council persons, yeah. township trustees, mayor, you name it. They knew. And this, these were real, real terrorists. So we have to make a distinction. Now, are we talking about the 21st century version of what that is? Right. Then the president is bumping up against that pretty strong. But we should not be cavalier, even in our disdain for, because some people have strong disdain for this president, or dislike for the way he comports himself, the policy positions, you know, continuing to talk about this daggone wall and willing to shut down the government over a wall. But from an academic Mm -hmm.
3: perspective...
6: We really have to be careful with banting that word about. And me, that's my concern. Yeah,
3: I hear you. Let me Let me ask you about that academic perspective. I mean, as you were listening to this speech, given your knowledge of the history of openly racist white nationalist leaders in the South and elsewhere in this country yes. from decades ago, what similarities do you hear? Do you hear similar phrases? The language. The and, language? Oh, absolutely. And that is where we must be
6: very careful yeah. because everything you just read, our culture, our, our culture, heritage. they're trying to take away mm-hmm. our, our, our. When you're dealing with people who are already in that mental space, uh, especially if people feel distressed economically. Yeah. Then we look to blame somebody else. It's just human nature. He's and that's always, been par- that. that's
3: always been the historical yes. paradigm of white nationalism. Absolutely. That's what openly racist national. Hey the past. Trump is adopting that very is. same frame of argument now. He is. And that is what is so scary.
6: This is scary. This is nothing to play with. Right. Th- this is serious. And this is not a partisan statement the way the president is trying to make it. He is being irresponsible. And I'm saying there's that, real and, and consequences. Very this. real consequences. And he's stoking people's anger and frustration. And the powder keg can blow. Yeah. So he is being very irresponsible. He needs to stop doing it. He knows exactly what he's doing here. And he's oh, playing yeah. with fire. Yeah, yeah. And it's everything that I can take not to just go all the way. I know people are right. calling him. Right. But but it depends on how we're defining what a white
3: supremacist, neo-Nazi, he's leaning there. So that's a good question. So how would you define someone who you'd be comfortable in calling a white supremacist, white nationalist?
6: I mean, is is what
3: that guy did to Heather. I mean, mm-hmm. to the extent that you are
6: willing to, to, to kill somebody over that belief or the guy that interviewed and he had all his little weapons on the bed and they come locked and loaded, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, when you're going to act out violently in that way, you're all the way there. Yeah, You know, the marching in the streets with those tiki torches and really going back to a time. The only thing they didn't have was the white sheet. But I would argue that in the 21st century, there are a lot of people who wearing a blue suit Yes. white sheet. Yes. And that's really what we're getting at. It is not I mean the covert, the overt display of that that happened in, in in Charlottesville, Virginia is bad enough. But I would also like to remind people that we need to be on alert for covert racism yes. that is permeating, yeah. still
3: permeates. You know, I don't know if you heard uh, I've been talking about this for like the last two days because I thought it was so incredible. The New York Times podcast The Daily uh-huh. yesterday had a really an amazing interview with a man who grew up in a white nationalist family yes. and was groomed to take over kind of the white nationalist movement. Mm-hmm. He's the son of the man who started the, um, what is it, the Stormfront, that big okay. white nationalist yes. website. And as a child, he built like a kid's section to the site. And it's just really what he grew up in and it right. what, what bound his family together. Yes. And then he goes off to college. And in the first few years, he's still kind of doing the radio show that he did, the white supremacist radio show. He's still helping his father run the white nationalist movement. And then slowly, piece by piece, he begins to see doubts uh, and and grow doubts about white nationalist ideology, Mm -hmm. about does race really determine your intelligence, for instance. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's brought in pseudoscience. Pseudoscience, yeah. He's brought in by a Jewish classmate of his to Shabbat dinner. Mm -hmm. And that really begins to open his mind. And at this Shabbat dinner, there's a man who begins to challenge him on his beliefs. And Nina, over the period of a year, uh, he goes back with this man back and forth, uh, arguing every single white nationalist belief. And at the end of the year, he... Completely breaks from white nationalism, wow. and he writes a a letter to the um, the Southern Poverty Law Center, mm-hmm. which is of course the the institution that uh, that uh, monitors white nationalists yes. and hate speech, and is actually widely read mm-hmm. in the white nationalist community. And he he knew if he wrote them the letter and they published the letter, kind of everybody would know that he has broken away from the movement. Mm-hmm. And so he does, and it's published. And his dad calls him and, and tells him you know, if I knew that having a son would be so painful, maybe I shouldn't have had the son. And so now he has a rift with his family. And it's an extraordinary, extraordinary interview. One man's evolution. Yes. But he also talks about right before he left for college, he ran for a very local uh, kind of county executive seat uh, in Florida. They're from Florida. And he gave a speech at a white nationalist conference about that experience. Mm -hmm. And at the time, his vision was that it's difficult to be a white national, an openly identified white nationalist in 2017, that it's very controversial. Yes, He said, but what you can do is that you can cleverly weave in white nationalist beliefs mm-hmm. into the Republican platform. Mm-hmm. And so, as exactly as you say, people yes. in those blue suits, in blue suits, lawyers, blue jeans, blue jeans, blue jeans suits. yeah, exactly, doctors yes, that's right. who are secretly white nationalists uh-huh. ha- adopt policy positions just like Trump when it comes to immigration, yes. most, most prominently, when it comes to... Other issues like this really intense protectionism. Mm -hmm. And and that is to say that we're not just talking about the rhetoric and the speech that's so dangerous that may lead to violence. We're also talking about policies that keep non-white people out of this country, that keep them... Uh, that that, that uh, keep them from from moving up in society, whether it be affirmative action policies right. that this president's now going after. But, and
6: and you when we can't forget, people are so quick to forget. That's why I want us to take a deeper dive. Yeah. There's promise in this problem, and I'm hoping as a nation that citizen leaders, immigrant leaders, that we you, p- folks don't need a fancy title to get involved in this. So no, that's yeah, right. So titles are good. Purpose is better. I always yeah. say that. Per- the titles yeah, good are point. good. Yeah. Yeah. They matter. Yeah, but purpose is better. So you are I'm, the president. Tomorrow. Right, he, he right. <laughs> I am. So I want people to feel empowered in this moment. And how do we get from here where we are now? To there, because Mr. Trump will not always be president. Yeah. So we got a plan. You yeah. know, there's a African proverb that says that one should never build their shield on the battlefield. Well, a shield <laughs> building <laughs> time. Yeah. But back yeah. to the point that you were making, it is let's follow the policy. So even looking at the policies of this country yeah. that empowered the type of racism from black codes to Jim Crow. And Jim Crow era didn't end until the late 60s. Yeah. So this is not something that happened, you know, seventeen hundred. I mean, we know what was going on in 1700s, 1600s, 1800s. But I want people to internalize the fact that even lynching in this country, that 72% of those of the people lynched were black. Mm-hmm. You know, so when you have a Nina Simone singing Mississippi, goddamn mm-hmm. that song, and I encourage the, the listeners and the viewers, go listen to the words of that song. Every day. Yeah. Yeah. Or every day, you're right. <laughs> or strange... Fruit. this is real and so that's why i said when the president's plan playing with fire so redlining you know restrictive covenants where african-americans and jewish our african-american and jewish sisters and brothers couldn't live in certain areas in, in 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 this country because it was written into the deeds that you couldn't sell your house to an african-american or somebody or, or a jewish person yeah, yeah. Th- those are policies when the economic strata, you know, even um, after the Great Recession that we had, that the home value. So everybody was hit across the, the spectrum. Yep. So poverty is hard and it cuts across ethnicities. I want to say that very clearly, that there are poor white folks in this country and I get it. Yeah. But disproportionately, when we look at that, it, it hurts and cuts the African-American community, other communities of color, more harshly. So when you look at the types of loans that were, you know, sold at that time, who's hurt the intensity of that? We're talking about public policy and the federal government way, way before Mr. Trump. Mm-hmm. But we're just seeing mm-hmm. it in our lifetime mm-hmm. plan before our eyes. Yep. Empowered the type of policies that made African-Americans and other people of color second, third, fourth. Tenth degree citizens in this country and we have to do something about it. so it is bumping up against that very visual display of bigotry and white supremacy, but I don't want us to lose sight of the more insidious, covert mm-hmm. racism systematic racism yeah. that goes on in this
3: country. Yeah, because those aren't policy accidents. Those no, are no. policy intentions. No, on purpose. That's and right. Purpose. Policy yeah. on purpose. Policy on purpose. No, yeah. But let's maybe build this shield together. Okay. Yes. Uh, I was tweeting about this speech uh, last night, and a lot of what I heard were people saying, and I myself felt some of this, of, I don't know what to do. This is so crazy. Yeah. I don't know how to react. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fight this man. Yeah. What what can we do in this moment after the speech, after Charlottesville, to not only heal our own communities, yeah. but also to try to move past this? One neighbor at a time. Ugh. Even having that conversation with your you're family. Not, you're not going to give me a magical solution? <laughs> no, I wish I had some. But <laughs> wish you, you had know. some.
6: <laughs> but, but it's one person at a time. It's one conversation at a time in, in our communities. But it's also planning for our next election cycle. And, and I'm not just saying this because I navigate that space, but this yeah. is real. The types of people who have the power to be able to push that kind of policy that will change this country in ways that lifts everybody. So we cannot be so discouraged and distraught about this moment that we're not planning. So this is what I say. We must protest and plan. Mm-hmm. So meaning that when bigotry is in our face like that, the colored water fountain and the white co- Water fountains. That's what we're up against in the 21st century. In our lifetime, like we read about those things. We never thought we would live them. So I want people to psychologically think about that, that you walking up to the water fountains and you see colored and you see white. That is what's happening right now. Yeah. But we have to make sure that we are internalizing this in a way that says that we will not allow this kind of thing to reoccur on our watch, that we are an imperfect nation, but we're a nation of progress. So we must protest, but we must plan. Mm-hmm. We must persevere. So local, state, federal levels of government, we got to get out into our community because there's more conscious minded folks than not. We mm-hmm. outnumber mm-hmm. that small group, but we got to make sure that people who are who are of conscious mind win those seats. Yeah. Yeah and have the people's power, and they push that power in a way that does not discriminate, it's not sexist, it's not racist, it's not ageist, none of those isms mm-hmm. to really push us forward.
3: Do you think that uh, our elected Democrats are doing enough, or what more can they be doing in this moment? I mean, you remember yeah. immediately after the president was elected, there was the sense of, oh, let's give him a chance, let's see how he does, and it really took... Um, African-American lawmakers in Congress, people like Maxine Waters, to kind of draw the line in the yeah. sand and hold this president accountable and kind of everybody else followed in, in a way yeah. or, or many of them followed in a way. If you were advising, and I'm, I'm sure you, you have a lot of these conversations, uh, Democrats and, and, and progressives who are in positions of power, what more can they be doing or what in your eyes are they not doing enough of? Well,
6: we got to push a policy. agenda. It's not just enough to be against Trump to be anti President Trump, yeah. Is is well, he is the president. Not, <laughs> scratch my air quotes. <laughs> yes. uh, but but it's not enough to be against. You gotta push out there what you are for. Yeah, let's and define so, that. That's key. That's so one key. of the things that we're doing at Our Revolution is the People's Platform. Yeah, which is to say very strongly that we're pushing a policy agenda that supports the people of this country, so that when Democrats get the power back. We're already ready. Going back to what I said, you can't build the shield, you know, on the battlefield. We need to build it now. So Medicare for all. Pushing that, you know, Representative John Conyers has a bill right now in the Congress. For years is that this bill? Yeah. Senator Sanders is introducing one in the Senate. Come on, let's stand up and say that, that when we have the power, these are the things we're going to push. Free college in universities across across this country that we go from a pre-K model Uh, We go from a K to 12 model to, in my mind, a pre-K to 16 model that we're going to educate folks. But having those conversations, I would recommend that members of Congress and not just members of Congress, I want to see council people do this, even on the local level. You don't have to be on the federal level. Have meetings in your community, in the communities with the people that you serve and, and say that. This, this looks very daunting right now. You know,
3: part of, part of the challenge and a lot of those ideas, Medicare for All, Free College, yeah. we heard in the primary, we heard yes. in the campaign. Uh, ultimately, those ideas did not win, right? We're here with Trump. Uh, it, it, I think partly because, it, and maybe you disagree with me, is that it bumps up against this um, anxiety in America about institutions mm-hmm. and this distrust in America of government of religious institutions, all kinds of institutions. It's it's part of what led to really the rise of Trump yeah. and allowed him to become president. And so I'm curious about policy solutions that require uh, a large government role. We got to wrap up here, so we should continue this conversation later. Uh, do can we see those become law given where the American public is? I guess we'll, I guess we'll say we. we I, I we'll think say. I believe that we can. All right, Igor Volsky filling in for Bill Press. Nina Turner, she's the president of Our Revolution, at Nina Turner. Follow her on Twitter. Yes, and visit ourrevolution com. Quick break, back (laughs) right after this.
1: This is The Bill Press Show.
3: That's right, Bill Press show this Wednesday, August 23rd, 2017. I'm Igor Volsky filling in for Bill Press as we oh, try to recover from the night that was Trump's big rally in Arizona. Coming, of course, just the day after the president laid out his vision, his plan, if you can call it that, For Afghanistan Uh, Josh Letterman is the foreign affairs reporter at 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 the Associated Press on Twitter at Josh Letterman AP Josh good morning good morning thank you for being here we'll get into Trump's Afghan plan and what it means for the country what it means for our men and women uh, in uniform
2: but first this is the Full Court Press. Just
4: a couple of other stories for you on this Wednesday morning. We'll begin with Afghanistan, in fact. Uh, some rating, ratings in from Donald Trump's Monday night primetime address to the nation on his decision, which... All right, how many people watched? Didn't really uh, didn't really get any details. But anyway, uh, 28 million
7: on
3: average. 28, is
7: that good? What is that? Can I get a comparison? Slightly less than uh, his inauguration.
3: Oh, Okay. So. I,
7: I did
4: not have the inauguration number. I do have Obama's Afghanistan speech from December two thousand nine. That averaged forty point eight million. Oh, compared to twenty eight million on Monday night. However, That's funny
3: because it was basically the same plan. Yeah. <laughs>
4: however, <laughs> however, they do note that uh, this number does not include C-SPAN or online viewers. I'm sure there were probably more. Folks with traditional TVs, cable, uh, yeah, I'm sure C SPAN kicks it up. Yeah, to like 90, yeah. 100 million right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey, it's August 23rd. That means it is cheap flight day. Do you guys know? No, oh, no, flight day. We gotta um, go somewhere, something. Josh. Yeah, we could see flight prices reduced anywhere between 11 to 20 percent less than oh. they normally are. Oh, uh, pricing, of course, <laughs> varies, uh, depending on destination and timing. You know, I was researching cheap flight days. we're getting ready for this story here, you and I, take
3: me on a trip, Jamie.
4: Well, it didn't did you guys go? on? You guys just, just we came did off we just a trip. came
3: back from a beautiful trip. What, tell us, tell tell me about your trip. Oh, where, where where we went to Denver? We went to Wyoming. We went to Montana. What? It was what? the most relaxing. So, how, did you? And then we came back to this.
4: You flew to one we of those destinations, Denver. and then rented a car. We and drove. drove around. That's right.
3: I mean, Josh mostly drove. I just watched.
4: Uh, I saw fly fishing pictures from yes. Josh. Did yeah. you partake in the fly fishing yes, as well? Yes, Jamie, yes. I where mean, are the pictures? Josh just
3: refused to post the pictures of me fly. Fi- Josh caught, caught more fish, though. Caught And by more, he means
7: more than zero.
3: Okay. <laughs> I kind of caught a fish. I reeled a fish in. Yeah. You know, he just had the best spots. Because, you know, in the river, if you're upstream, you catch all the fish. And if you're downstream, which is where I was most of the time, it's more challenging. That's right. But, you know, I got to say, I... Uh, For a long time, didn't think that the rejuvenating power of vacations was real. I thought like people just said this so they could work less because I'm kind of how I think. But I finally went on on a vacation and I now know what it means when people say stress is a real killer because being in a stress-free environment, I felt like so much more alive and so much more imbued with actual life and so much happier and and rested. (laughs) That I, I now think going on vacation is a very good thing. It,
7: has it lingered since we got back? Or a little it, bit. It kind of
3: I mean, last right night on, really screwed it up kind with of the just, speech. Yeah. It, it made it Yeah, I was, I was in I'm Maine trying to hold on to two
4: it. weeks ago, and I felt the same way when I came back, but I think it's sort of worn off a little bit. It's the, worn off. The revitalization has worn off.
3: Yeah, the first couple of days were okay yeah. because, you know, it's like Afghanistan speech, okay, fine. But right. like after last night when we, we saw a kind of white nationalist Trump on full display became became a lot harder. All right, one more story here
4: from the Weird Food Beat. Uh, Pop quiz, where do you usually find weird candy? Which country? uh, In fact, which country? Great guess. Japan. There we go. Japan has announced that they are releasing a limited edition cough drop flavored Kit Kat.
2: Oh,
3: delicious. That's right. It's time to
4: the FIFA World Cup matches uh, that are coming up later this month. I guess the idea there is that you're screaming at a soccer match. You've got the cough drop lozenge powder and the candy. Maybe you won't lose your voice. So look for those in Japan if you're over there. Or watch cable like you just did.
2: (laughs) On your radio, on TV, and online. This is The Bill Press Show.
3: Garbulski filling in for Bill Press this Wednesday, August 23rd, 2017, Hour 2, uh, as we uh, try to live through the day after Trump's big Arizona rally. Uh, we'll talk about some of the crazy rhetoric there, as well as... Um, The new policy, no, policy, no, details, no. Uh, He gave on Afghanistan the night before. Josh Letterman is a foreign affairs reporter at the Associated Press. He's on Twitter at Josh Letterman AP. Joins us now in studio. Uh, Josh, good morning. Good morning, Igor. Um, Josh, you and I just got back from vacation. That's right. And uh, as we were, were coming back... Uh, That Sunday, we heard that um, Donald Trump is going to be announcing a new Afghanistan plan. Now, this is after months of review, uh, after he had promised multiple times to come up with uh, a strategy for America's longest war. Um, And so there he was. He asked for time on all of the networks and sought to lay out his vision Um, Give us a sense of of what we know uh, Donald Trump wants to do in Afghanistan.
7: Well, what what Donald Trump wants to do in Afghanistan and what Donald Trump is going to do in Afghanistan are actually not entirely the same thing. And uh, for once, we actually had a a relative level of openness from the president about the fact that he was uh, overriding his initial instinct, which was to pull out of Afghanistan, which he talked about a lot uh, prior to becoming a presidential candidate. You know, we got to get out of there. This is a stupid war. Um, and that after being in the Oval Office, that, that sort of changes the perspective and that uh, he realizes now that pulling out hastily would create all kinds of problems, namely uh, continuing to have a safe haven for terrorist groups that could threaten the U.S. So the new strategy, as you point out, looks a lot like the old strategy. It's essentially – a continuation of the status quo, no big expectations that we're going to have some immediate breakthrough where there's peace with the Taliban tomorrow or we defeat you know, the, the Taliban in Afghanistan, uh, but essentially trying to maintain some presence there, keep this as a low-level conflict that can be contained uh, without investing some huge amount, new amount of U.S. troops that could further embroil the U.S. into this war.
3: So currently, there's about over 8,000 American troops in Afghanistan. They're tasked with helping the Afghan forces fight the Taliban, but also which what controls half the country.
7: Right. The Afghan government itself controls basically about half the country, with the rest being controlled by the Taliban or other extremist groups.
3: And the American theory here is that if the Afghan government falls, then it really becomes a base of operation not only for the Taliban, which is mostly interested in governing Afghanistan, but also for Al-Qaeda and other radical groups which have ambitions externally um, to, to terrorize the world. The president, and this is President Obama, surged American troops to, what, 100,000 during his maybe first year in office. Uh, Now we're down to to 8,000. The question I think a lot of people ask when they heard this Trump strategy of sending some number of, some small number of troops, 4,000 maybe troops, to Afghanistan is if 100,000 American troops couldn't... I mean, they did, to be fair, they did uh, push back the Taliban when they were there. But then, of course, once they withdrew, the Taliban came back. But if 100,000 American troops couldn't solve the Afghan problem, what will, you know, 12,000 in total American troops be able to do under Trump?
7: Well, (laughs) not dramatically change the tide of the war. And that's why you don't I mean, even Trump, who's uh, predisposed to some rather over-the-top rhetoric, isn't talking about, you know, we're going to go in there and these, you know, extra few thousand troops are going to, you know, win the war overnight. We actually had a relatively stunning statement yesterday from Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, who said the message to the Taliban was, uh, we may not win this war, but you're not going to either, which is a rather stark departure from, you know, we're going to, you know, victory is going to be ours and we're going to win and, you know, defeat of our enemies. Which is what Trump said
3: on Monday night.
7: It is, but I I think even for Trump, this was not, we did not hear the same level of, we are going to defeat the Taliban and vanquish our enemies that we hear about, for instance, the Islamic State group. And I think that's an acknowledgement that if the U.S. is unwilling to invest 100,000 or more troops, uh, you know, even more than what Obama did, which Trump is clearly not, and which I think probably a lot of people... You know, a, a lot of progressives agree is not a great idea. Um, then the then the the goals and the what's achievable needs to be curtailed.
3: So he's sending more American troops into Afghanistan without any kind of clear strategy of of what success looks like. I guess it's containment of the Taliban and eventually bringing them to the negotiating table. But if you are, an American service member who's about to deploy into Afghanistan. What does it mean for you to take on that mission under the guise of we're probably not going to win? I mean, why are you going into Afghanistan, putting your life on the line when your government is telling you you're probably not going to win? That victory is really not what we're looking for, that we're looking for some kind of containment, maybe, hopefully.
7: Well, I think this has to do... uh with looking at you know what are the objectives of Trump's foreign policy, and they aren't really you know spreading democracy around the world as Bush wanted to do when he was in Afghanistan, it is to minimize the risk that all of these other countries can be used as uh, you know launching points for attacks on the U.S. So if we are containing. Uh, you know, the the Taliban and the uh, threats to the Afghan government, then, you know, it's it's possible that we can also contain the ability of, for instance, the Islamic State affiliate that has now gained a foothold in Afghanistan to use that as a launching base. You make it harder for our enemies to uh, exploit Afghanistan, even if you don't make it entirely impossible.
3: I mean, there's all, uh, you know, all kinds of of areas in, in the world. I mean, you know, particularly in areas of Africa where you have powerful terrorist groups that have all kinds of ambitions locally, internationally. If the argument is we have to have American troop presence in order to contain that threat, why aren't we then sending American troops all over the world?
7: Well Afghanistan has first of all, we are. I mean we, we, oh, okay. we're <laughs> conducted the US is conducting counterterrorism operations, you know, in Yemen, Somalia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Libya, I mean, you name it. Uh, that said, you know, I, I guess the the inverse of that argument would be, you know, for all of those American troops that, uh, you know, you're saying, well, how do how do we explain the mission to them if we're not telling them they're going there for victory, would be if we told all of them there that they're coming home now because this isn't winnable and we can't win this without some huge new investment we're not willing to do – what are we telling all of the Americans who fought and some of them died over the last 16 years there that they were there to do? You know, what uh, if we sort of abandon the mission now? I think that's how a lot of people look at this conflict.
3: If you had to line up the Obama-Afghanistan strategy and the Trump-Afghanistan strategy, there are a lot of similarities, right? President Obama- At a certain point, once he de-escalated the number of troops, was also of the mind that we really have to maintain this small number just to ensure that the uh, Afghan government doesn't fall to, to the Taliban. But there are some key differences in the Trump approach, especially his decision to outsource a lot of the military decisions to generals on the ground. What are the practical implications of um, of such an approach? And what are some of the other differences between uh, what Obama did and what Trump is now pursuing?
7: Well, military leaders have been relatively happy with the fact that they now have this additional authority to make a lot of game time decisions, not only in Afghanistan, but in other theaters of war without having to, for instance, go to all the way to the White House to the National Security Council when they want to authorize a certain strike or they want to move a large number of troops from one place to Another within the country,
3: think, and what was the rationale for Obama having that safety valve of him making those decisions as opposed to the generals? Why did he do that?
7: Well, I, I don't think Obama ever really discussed publicly why he was doing that, but I think that the you know pretty broad critique, which came really from from both sides, was that you know he really wanted a level of control. He wanted to be able to make those decisions himself, and there was also a concern in, among Obama and his senior advisors about. Uh, about civilian casualties, and if there wasn't a lot of handholding from the White House, that uh, you know there could be rash decisions um, by the military that would lead to some negative consequences. The other main distinction mm-hmm. between the Obama pr- approach and what Trump is describing, at least as far as the rhetoric, is this idea that. Finally, ultimately, we're going to crack down on Pakistan. Yeah. Uh, Now, of course, Bush tried to get Pakistan to stop harboring Taliban. Obama tried to do that. This has been a, a theme of our foreign policy for many years, but- Trying to pressure China on North Korea was also a strategy of Obama, and that's something that the pace has picked up under Trump if you look at the number of sanctions, actions, and other things. And so with Pakistan, I think at least for these first few days, we have to give Trump the benefit of the doubt that it's possible he could pursue a more muscular approach to trying to enlist Pakistan's help.
3: Yeah, What is the role of, of Pakistan mm-hmm. when it comes to Afghanistan?
7: Well, this is a matter of great dispute. If you ask Pakistan, they say the idea that they have any influence over the Taliban is greatly overstated. They hate, you know, why the to- Taliban has done all kinds of terrible things. Why would we want them in our country? However, we know that Pakistan has basically looked the other way for a long time because they see the Taliban's influence in Afghanistan as a bulwark against India's influence in Afghanistan. So we know that uh, Taliban leaders uh, live freely in Pakistan. They travel without a whole lot of problem over the border between the two countries. The Taliban wounded are treated in Pakistani hospitals. And there are very close ties between uh, the ISI, which is this top security apparatus in Pakistan, and uh, the Haqqani network, which is essentially the Pakistani version of the Taliban.
3: So... Obama tried to, I assume, use carrots and sticks to clamp down the support that Pakistan provides to the, to the Taliban. Trump, on Monday night, suggested he would do the same. What are some of those tools that sure. Americans can use to put pressure on Pakistan?
7: Well, again, we're hearing the president try to avoid showing his hand too much. This has been another consistent theme of yeah. his approach. You know, we don't want to tell people what we're going to do before we're going to do it. I uh, will
5: not say when we are going to attack, but attack we will.
7: Wow. Jamie with the trigger He's finger on there. it. That was impressive. He's on it. Yeah. Uh, but we do know that Secretary Tillerson has talked about potential sanctions on Pakistan, as well as potentially cutting off their status as a major non-NATO ally.
3: So... Why didn't Obama think of that? If it's if if that is to be an, a super effective sure. policy tool.
7: Well, you know, again, I mean, it, it's like with with China and North Korea. You know, you can punish China, but then you have all of these this other business to do with China that can be affected by that. So you sort of have to, you know, be careful how much you anger countries that you know have a, a lot of leverage over trade and other issues with Pakistan we rely on Pakistan for a lot of counterterrorism help uh you know with other groups and there are So there are
3: consequences There are consequences
7: to... potentially to uh to doing that and, you know the other thing that would be the obvious bucket would be you know our our foreign assistance to Pakistan that could be curtailed and actually has already been dropping
3: And let me ask you about uh the other piece of of the Trump doctrine such as it is about not giving any kind of end date to sure. the Taliban because the theory goes that If you tell the the Taliban uh, or other terrorist forces when you're going to leave, they're just going to wait you out. Uh, A point somebody made on Twitter is, well, they live in Afghanistan, so what does it mean waiting you out? Yes, they will always be there. But is there truth uh, to the criticism that Obama got of uh, setting any kind of date certain uh, really undermines our effort in in trying to bring stability to the region because it, it kinda uh, in, in very big you know letters telecast to everyone that uh, america's leaving you'll take over in a matter of weeks, months, or whatever the date is
7: that certainly was a criticism that you know came from a lot of different sides. I, I remember John McCain being the chief cheerleader of that when Obama announced a withdrawal date for that hundred thousand surge to a, a total of a hundred thousand. Uh, troops. You know, you're right that it's not likely that uh, not providing an end date is going to make the Taliban think, you know, uh oh, well, the Americans are here to stay. So we better abandon our vision of how we want to govern um, Afghanistan. But I think what I mean, what Obama's desire to put an end date on this reflected that is still relevant today is that Nobody wants to be in Afghanistan. None of us want to be there. And no Americans after uh, more than a decade of war want this open-ended commitment where you sort of are just endlessly in this quagmire, the graveyard of empires, as Afghanistan's been referred to. Uh, But certainly the fact that uh, Trump has, in a number of different conflicts now, uh, been a little bit more guarded as far as what he discloses is something that military analysts have said uh, is not strategically a bad idea.
3: In your reporting, and I know you've been looking for this, I'm constantly looking for this, which is what is the progressive alternative to the war in Afghanistan? Like if we if progressives, liberals, Democrats, whatever you want to call them had their way, what would they do in Afghanistan? Now, I've been searching. I'll tell you what I've found. Yeah. That there are, there's a small minority that says, let's just pull out and whatever happens, happens. But the much larger kind of progressive foreign policy establishment talks about reducing the number of troops in Afghanistan to some number that of troops who are able to go after terrorist organizations and and terrorists and keep them from spreading into the region so right now we're at eight thousand maybe we bring it down to five thousand four thousand but that you need some kind of presence just to kind of keep the the bare minimum in Afghanistan is that what you're hearing in terms of alternatives to what Trump has proposed?
7: Yes, and that really was Obama 2.0 I mean after the initial surge, in his second term, Obama curtailed this, brought it down by the end to 8,400 troops, uh, but basically refocused the mission around counterterrorism, as as you're discussing. We want to have enough troops there that you know we see a bunch of ISIS guys, you know, out in the desert. We have the ability to go after them. But I think that you know the the counterargument to that is, what's the status quo? We've got 8,400. It's actually a little bit more if you count troops that are there on a temporary basis, and already the. At, a, at best, you can call this a stalemate. At worst, the Taliban is gaining ground on the Afghan government that we've now been supporting for 16 years. So it's difficult to argue when the status quo is already looking bad and kind of slipping away from you that even fewer troops is likely to prevent that from getting worse. Mm.
3: Let me zoom out a bit uh, and, and talk more broadly about Trump's foreign policy approach. He certainly ran as an isolationist, arguing that why are we spending money overseas when we can be spending it domestically rebuilding our schools, for instance. It's what he said as a private citizen. It's what he said during the campaign. He admitted on Monday night that as president sitting behind that desk, he came to a different conclusion when the problems were actually facing him. And immediately after his speech uh, at a town CNN town hall, uh, um, Paul Ryan uh, g- gave, and I, I wish I had it written down, gave some kind of label to Trump's foreign policy doctrine, that it was some kind of realism. Maybe you remember. It was some kind of realism that Trump was espousing. How would you describe, if possible, kind of holistically— uh, Trump's foreign policy vision. What is the Trump foreign policy doctrine?
7: Paul Ryan might have actually been picking up on a phrase that Trump used in his speech, was which was pragmatic realism. Pragmatic realism. I don't actually that's know what right. that means. That just sounds like a what, bunch of mumbo jumbo yeah. to me. It sounds uh, like
3: the pra- pragmatism and realism are like very close, I think, in definitions. Right. So it's it's like saying like realism, realism. <laughs> right.
5: Exactly.
7: Well, I think look, people have, uh, you know, s- searched through Trump's brain to the extent that's possible to identify some core values yeah. or principles that are driving this and there don't seem to be consistent values as far as what are our goals going to be but what we do see from trump is some consistency in the tactics that he deploys and some of them are what we've talked about don't tip your hand to the enemy don't set artificial timelines the way obama did don't micromanage your military and force them to come to the white house with every time they want to you know drop a bomb on somebody um Uh, try to enlist uh, the help of other countries. So, you know, even as we're saying we're not going to be doing nation building and, you know, building bajillion schools in Afghanistan, we hear the Trump administration saying yesterday, well, we're still going to build schools so that women can be educated in Afghanistan. We're just going to force all of these other countries to pay for it. And, you know, especially the the Persian Gulf countries, Uh, you know, a similar approach to what Trump has tried in, uh, you know, a lot of other conflicts where, you know, in Syria, where he's saying, you know, we're going to get other people to uh, pick up part of the tab on this. We're going to get the Mexicans to pick up the tab on on the border. So force other people to pay their fair share. NATO, good example of that as well. Um, so we see these these elements of this is how you get to a goal under Trump's vision, uh, but less consistency about what should our basic Objectives be when we interact with the rest of the world, um, and uh, and and where should we refrain from, you know, trying to uh, pursue adventurism overseas.
3: So speaking of paying and and funding, one fundamental question that I think policymakers um, of both political parties have struggled with is going after the funding that the Taliban, Al Qaeda, ISIS have. Uh, in order to continue, uh, you know, continue being in, being in power and, and taking over territory. I mean, a lot of that funding, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is from individual um, g- uh, Gulf Nation uh, rich people, frankly, uh, some governments, is there an effort in, to go after the funding of the Taliban of, of ISIS? Uh, certainly I think it's something Obama pursued uh, because ultimately you know what keeps these groups going is, is the money that, that flows in from from supporters.
6: That's
7: true, and there is an effort, uh, you know, by the administration, by by the U.S. government, I should say, that transcends yeah. administrations to to try to crack down on that. I do think it's a different, uh, it's a little bit different scenario than. I mean, there has not been a lot of uh, wealth in Afghanistan for a very long time, and the Taliban. Have been able to operate without the kind the Taliban have never been flush with cash the way the Islamic State group at one point was you know where you just had these massive oil revenues we know Trump is very interested in Afghanistan's immense mineral wealth well, that could be right. exploited if you know certain actors wanted to, to do that but so far it hasn't really um, but the other thing is that there's a, a very large ability for the Taliban to derive income internally through the production of poppies and uh, opium that's that's later turned into heroin and exported into other countries such as the United States of America. So, you know, the the ability to eradicate the opium uh, uh, growth and, and trade in Afghanistan is something that has been tried by the U.S. to varying degrees uh, over the over the many years, but something we've never really been able to totally get rid of.
3: So in the time we have left, let's just quickly go into some of the reporting of how Trump came to his Afghan strategy, how he made the flip-flop from let's get out of Afghanistan to let's send more troops, some of the reporting discussed a picture that Trump saw of Afghan women in in miniskirts in the 1970s, that this was presented to him as proof that uh, that Afghanistan wasn't always this uh, this extremist society. They used that to they, have Western ideals. They had Western ideals and, and Western values. Do you know to what degree did the miniskirt picture convince the president? And it feels to me like the generals really beat him down into making this decision that he was ultimately hesitant. He was hesitant the whole way through to send more troops, given where he stood on the issue ideologically. Well,
7: we know that that it was among the ways that. Military advisors, Secretary Tillerson and others, tried to lay this out for Trump over the past uh, several months. A number of times this year, uh, Trump's advisors thought that th- this was all good to go. They'd, they'd gotten his sign off. Things were good. He was going to back this Pentagon plan for roughly 3,800 more troops, only to find that the president wasn't really there yet and was putting this back on hold and wanted to study it a little bit more. Um one of we don't know you know to any to to what degree any particular argument was or persuas- or for <laughs> picture was persuasive to the president but we do know that the way that he and other aides have described the reason that he's staying in afghanistan despite his admitted reluctance is the fact that look he's the president now and he owns this and if he pulls out And within a year, two years, we see, you know, uh, Afghanistan become, again, a place from which, uh, you know, extremists can attack America. God forbid there should be another, uh, you know, attack um, that creates echoes of 9-11. That's going to be on Trump. And he is going to be the one who's blamed for allowing Afghanistan to, again, become a harbor for terrorists. And that's something that uh, the president seems very intent on Avoiding
3: how do you think very quickly this is going to play with trump's base many of whom were so attracted to his more isolationist campaign rhetoric?
7: Well, Trump has pointedly declined to say how many more troops he's sending, even though we all know he's basically backing the Pentagon plan, which is 3,800. But the fact that he is so reluctant to talk in any detail about just what this new U.S. investment looks like is a reflection of the fact that his base doesn't want to hear about thousands more American troops going over to Afghanistan. So he's trying to downplay that while emphasizing all of this other stuff, you know, pressuring Pakistan and regional integrated approach approaches and, you know, South Asia, India, whatever, that his base is less likely to object to.
3: And is there, just quickly, is there like an international coalition here that's joining Trump in in this effort? I mean, we had a large international presence, certainly under Bush, under, under Obama to some degree. Where is the rest of the world on Afghanistan? Do they support this kind of containment approach?
7: We still have the international security for the the ISAF that's fighting in Afghanistan. NATO is a big component of that. And uh, in the wake of the president's speech on Monday night, we've heard several uh, other NATO countries, uh, Britain and others, saying that as the U.S. increases their troop commitment, that those other countries will as well.
3: Uh, Josh Letterman, he is the foreign affairs reporter at the Associated Press. You can follow him at Josh Letterman, AP. Always a terrific Twitter follower. Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Igor. Quick break. We're back here on The Bill Press Show.
1: His speech was without thought. It was without reason. It was devoid of facts. It was devoid of wisdom. There was no gravitas. There was no sanity there. He was like a child blaming a sibling on something else.
2: Social with Bill Press. Like us at Facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show.
3: That's right. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Watch those videos. Uh, And follow us on Twitter, at BP Show. I'm at Igor Volsky on Twitter. Give us your comments. Plug in. Uh, We want to hear from you. Now, we've spent so much time uh, talking about the president's Afghanistan strategy, talking about his super crazy Phoenix speech last night. Um, I'm joined now, though, by Sarah McBride. She's the National Press Secretary at the Human Rights Campaign, also on Twitter, at Sarah E. McBride. That's Sarah with an H. That's sometimes, correct. That's, a, that's very important. Because I know a lot of Sarahs. Some of them it's have It's the no first H. question that every Sarah
0: asks each other. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. How do you spell it with an H or without an H? Huh. What's the worst spelling? Without an H, because <laughs> I have an H. <laughs> I'm also trans, Duh. so I picked the name. So I, I yeah. I so the why right did you one. pick the H? <laughs> uh, because it was the, it, it looks naked without the H to me. Mm. To me, you okay, know? that's Most fair. of the Sarahs I knew had an H, so I was just used to it.
3: Okay, that's fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, I I t- oh, by the way, speaking of picking names, so my name is Igor, right? We know this. And when I when we immigrated to America. I had a choice. Well, I didn't have a choice. So when we immigrated to America, they had to figure out how to write my Russian name, which is actually in Russian pronounced Igor. It's like very soft, huh. igur. Uh How to write that into English. And the way they wrote it, the way the person, whoever the person was who wrote it in English, they spelled it I-G-U-R, which to a lot of people- uh, they Right, exactly. Yeah. They wrote it as igur. And so- When we became citizens uh, of America in 2007, I believe it took like 15 years, uh, I had an opportunity when you become a citizen, you literally just fill out a form. And if you want to change your name, literally all you do is you like check a box. And you just write whatever new name, whatever new name you want. And so I changed it then from the U to the L because it was really confusing people.
0: Yeah, well, I think that's that's more confusing than with the
3: H. H. (laughs) (laughs) There you go, there you go, Sarah. I want to talk to you about where this president stands on LGBT issues because I know big sigh, (laughs) big breath. Because when I think about it, from Trump private citizen, to Trump campaign, to Trump president, you've really seen an evolution, certainly. Or devolution. Or devolution, that's a better way. As a New Yorker real estate tycoon, Trump seemed fairly open-minded. He certainly had, I think, probably LGBT friends, LGBT uh, associates on his campaign he talked about how he uh is going to be the best president for lgbt americans that hillary clinton takes all this money from countries that that oppress lgbt people you heard republican lgbt organizations like the log cabin republicans praise uh, then candidate trump for even talking about lgbt people at the convention
4: he but got Caitlyn Jenner's endorsement.
3: The coveted yeah. Caitlyn Huge. Jenner endorsement. Huge. Um, so we, I think, went into the presidency thinking, well, this Donald Trump, he's like kind of a clever guy. Like he knows that even in 2017, like you, you know, going after LGBT people is kind of off limits. Like how? Wow. This was like pretty impressive. But that's not what we've seen from President Trump. So, what do you make a of this de-evolution, as you call it? And then, where do we stand today when it comes to Trump and his policies that impact LGBT Americans?
0: Well, I think that's a great question. I think I think first, you're you're absolutely right that Trump, the private citizen, even before running for office, was probably someone who was apathetic, if not um, uh, mildly supportive of you know his gay friends that he meets. <laughs> uh, in Manhattan. Um, I, you know, I want to be careful of, of saying LGBTQ yeah. there because yeah. I'm not sure how many transgender friends he had. Um, but uh, but I think once he started running for president, even with the the sort of protests to the contrary, that he was a friend of the LGBTQ community, Donald Trump did endorse pretty much every single anti LGBTQ position that you can think of during the campaign. He committed to appointing anti-equality judges to the federal bench. He committed to uh, supporting the ability of states like North Carolina to legislate discrimination. He committed to signing the First Amendment Defense Act, which is a legislation, uh, a bill that would legislate Kim Kim Davis-style discrimination at the federal level. And then, of course, he picked Mike Pence, uh, whose national profile rests in large part on being anti-LGBTQ. So I think once he started to run, once he was embraced during the birther movement and then prior to the campaign by the far right wing of the Republican Party, um, he, he maybe knew that he couldn't uh, uh, he, he maybe knew he wanted to to throw a couple bones to the LGBTQ community with some empty rhetoric. But he really did co-opt and adopt all of their policies. Uh, and then I think once he's become president, uh, it's clear with what he's done even to him someone who's completely divorced from reality that he can no longer even offer those empty rhetorical promises promises of being a friend
3: and and let's outline what he's done because i always feel that with trump because there's so much going on and so much craziness that the pieces of action that aren't at the very front of the headlines often get lost and forgotten so what has trump done to hurt the lgbt community
0: well, it's, it's it's a long list, so I'll keep it sort of the top <laughs> lines. Um, the first thing that I'll mention is a couple months, two months after getting uh, sworn in or a month after getting sworn in and two days after Jeff Sessions was sworn in as attorney general, the Department of Justice and the Department of Education rescinded the life saving guidance promoting the protection of transgender students that the Obama administration had issued uh, a year before. This was guidance that didn't just say that transgender students Uh, should be able to access restrooms consistent with their gender identity, but that schools have to take bullying against them seriously, that students have to be called by the names that they go by and referred to uh, with respect uh, and dignity. Uh, So they rescinded that guidance. They made clear uh, to the federal courts that they no longer thought that Title IX, the, the education protections based on sex at the federal level, included discrimination based on gender identity. Uh, he appointed in Neil Gorsuch a justice who is vehemently anti-LGBTQ, and in fact, one of his first uh, dissenting opinions demonstrated just how much he wants to, as a justice, narrow the impact of the Obergefell decision uh, and make sure that it's, it's, the a, it's the marriage equality decision to make sure that, that um, you might be able to get the paper, but there are benefits that you aren't going to get or there are protections that you won't have. Um, he, his Department of Justice has said that they don't believe that gay, lesbian and bisexual workers are protected under federal civil rights laws, which the Obama administration and a growing number of courts had acknowledged. And then, of course, most recently, the president in his erratic tweet storm uh, declared that he'd be reinstating the ban on transgender service members. That's 15,000 active duty transgender service members, three times the amount that he's going to be sending into Afghanistan mm. with a surge that he's threatening to fire.
3: There was some pushback to the, to reinstating the transgender ban in the military with service branches immediately after the tweet uh, expressing surprise <laughs> and shock that the, the, this was unexpected, that um, they would have to issue guidance uh, and look, look into this issue. So wh- where does it stand now? Uh, there appears to be um, now some effort to implement what Trump has tweeted.
0: Yeah. You know, there there are varying reports coming out of various places of, of what this might look like and how they might go about it. Uh, it's clear the White House is is trying to push this process forward. I think the Defense Department is trying to slow it down quite a bit, allow for um, time and more review to make sure that that they are minimizing. And it's still going to be incredibly harmful to make sure that they are are trying to rein the president in a little bit. But there's only so much that these commanders and these Pentagon officials can do uh, because the commander in chief's given um, a, a directive here. Uh, it's our view. It's the view of a lot of organizations and and uh, uh, scholars that it's that it's an unconstitutional order uh, that to to ban transgender service members uh, to Ban transgender people from enlisting—that it's unconstitutional—and there are a number of court cases that are proceeding to challenge uh, whatever policy ends up coming forward.
3: What does it mean uh, to transgender service members who are serving today? We're just at fifteen thousand—is that yeah. right? As many as 15,000. As many as 15,000. To hear their commander-in-chief institute such a policy just by whim, by tweet, because he's trying to make some kind of deal, allegedly, what does it uh, say to them?
0: Well, you know, I I, I don't want to speak for transgender service members, but I can relay what I've heard from a number of them. Um, I've heard that this uh, demonstrates that Donald Trump does not respect their service, uh, but more than anything else, it threatens their careers and their livelihoods. And, and when you are serving this country, let's say you're, as, as one um, transgender veteran said, let's say you're a platoon leader in Afghanistan, and you wake up that day and find out that you may not have a job the next or in a few weeks, how do you effectively do your job? How do you effectively have all of your mind in the mission? How do you effectively serve all of the individuals within your platoon if You're not sure you're going to be there if you're waking up each day wondering whether it will be your last day in a job uh, when you find yourself under attack by your own commander in chief. So it's it's been a sign of disrespect to these service members. It's certainly threatened their careers, but it's also had the effect of undermining military readiness, unit cohesion and our ability uh, transgender people's ability who are in the military to actually fulfill the mission, and therefore for their for their units to fulfill the mission.
3: Does it push people back into the closet who are thinking of coming out, uh, or um, you know maybe going through through some kind of transition process? And what are the yeah. what are the consequences of that? Well,
0: it, it absolutely does. Uh, there are transgender people who are serving in the military who are still in the closet. Transgender people who uh, who who maybe not are not ready to come out, who are going through sort of their mental process of, of coming to terms with their identity. And what this does is it pushes them back into the closet very clearly. It restricts their ability to live their truth. And we know that when transgender people, including transgender service members, are able to be affirmed and respected in their authentic selves within their job, able to access the kind of care that every person needs to live and thrive, when they are allowed to do that, they are more productive, they're more loyal, and uh, they have better relationships with their, with their colleagues, and in this case, fellow service members. So it's, it's a net positive when you allow people to bring their whole selves to work, including in the military. And Donald Trump is obviously pushing them back into the closet. He's saying that you can't be your true self, that you can't serve and, and be transgender at the same time. Uh, and, and there are countless individuals in the military and countless individuals who want to serve in the military for whom this is either saying you have to stay in the closet or you can't serve your country.
3: Now, before this Twitter directive, uh, trans people were able to serve in the military through regulation, right? It wasn't a statutory um, policy like we Don't Ask, Don't Tell, right. which of course was eventually repealed, which uh, impacted um, gay, lesbian, bisexual service members. Was there something more President Obama could have done to protect uh, trans uh, military service members uh, that could have prevented this kind of, you know, ban by tweet?
0: I think it would have been very difficult to have passed any kind, uh, to, 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 to have passed any type of inclusion effort within, uh, through Congress, uh, within law. Uh, that regulation was really the best way to go, but also really the, the right way to go, because at the end of the day, this was A decision that wasn't supposed to be based on politics. It wasn't supposed to be a decision that was left up to uh, uh, sort of the political uh, lawmaking process, but rather a process that was reflecting uh, medical science, uh, current research. Mm -hmm. It was done best through sort of internal Pentagon processes, including through regulations. I think, of course, this decision that Obama made a year ago to allow transgender people to serve openly, it should have happened even earlier. Uh, And maybe if it had happened earlier, maybe if we had gone uh, through the process a little bit longer and transgender people had been serving for a little bit longer, maybe it would have made it harder. Uh, But I think what's clear by this president, what's clear through these tweets is that he wasn't reflecting on this policy. This wasn't a rational policymaking process. (laughs) This was a president acting on a whim uh, for whatever reason. I mean, even the people who were asking him to take some step on this for the sort of Legislative deal making around the NDAA, which is the the rumor, they were just asking for a discriminatory action around health care, not to ban all transgender people from serving. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if there is anything else that could have been done to keep this president from uh, harshly and and hatefully targeting transgender troops.
3: Let me ask you about the politics of uh, transgender people in in today's uh, kind of political climate, uh, where progressives are on the issue. I mean, we've seen, I think, a tremendous uh, evolution from where Democrats and progressives were on LGBT issues even as recently as 2008. Uh, now we are in, in 2017. Um, do you think that the, the Democratic Party progressives have kind of fully embraced transgender people, or is there still work to be done on that front?
0: I think we've made a lot of progress, but I think there's no question that there's a lot of work to do. I think obviously the events in in places like North Carolina underscored for Democrats, for progressives, for I think the country as a whole, that transgender people are people, that we're worthy of dignity and fairness, that discriminating against us is mean-spirited, it's wrong, and it does not wear well in history. Um, I think the, the progressive movement uh, has has gotten to the point where they have accepted transgender equality as a, as a civil rights movement that we must be fighting for, but I think we have a long way to go before Democrats, progressives, and and the country as a whole really feels the passion behind this fight yeah. that transgender people need them to feel. I think one of the challenges we face, not to sort of psychoanalyze, is no, that <laughs> for for uh, for for straight for straight individuals it might be a little bit easier to empathize with the experience of being gay because they understand what it feels like to love, Mm -hmm. to feel attracted to someone. I think for for cisgender people, which is the term for people who are not transgender, it does become harder to wrap their mind around or empathize with the experience of having a gender identity that differs from their sex assigned at birth. And I think bridging that empathy gap, getting people to to, um, see transgender people as whole people, getting them to, to, to understand that you don't have to necessarily understand to feel passionate, but also in many ways sharing our stories so that they can begin to understand what it's like to be us as best they can.
3: And that's really an apolitical process in yes. the sense that when you see stories in media, in uh, TV and film that reflect those struggles, it helps people understand what it means to be transgender, what transgender actually actually means, and we've seen a lot of shows. Certainly, Transparent comes to mind. Uh, Caitlyn Jenner. I mean, not a show, had a show. <laughs> comes short, to show. Mind, short show. Short uh, show. Those feel like like strong advances in recent years.
0: Yeah, uh, people like Jazz Jennings too, who who is that young transgender teen who had mm. shared her story the TLC, with Barbara the Walters and now has yeah. the TLC show. Um, So many people who are sharing their stories publicly, we need need to diversify the faces that we see um, because so many of the things you and I just mentioned, those are predominantly white faces. um, They are predominantly trans women. We need to diversify those faces and those stories. But it really is an apolitical process in terms of sharing those stories and getting people to open their hearts and change their minds. And for people who understand You know, they might have been wrong on marriage ten or fifteen years ago. They don't want to be wrong again, so they're on our side, but they don't quite get it yet.
3: In terms of the work that still needs to be done in the Democratic Party, now you spoke at the at the Democratic National Convention uh, last year in uh, in Philadelphia, um, proudly announcing that you're a transgender woman. What did you receive? And I'm curious. I've been meaning to ask you about this. did you receive any pushback from Democrats, maybe more conservative Democrats, uh, about your appearance there? Was there anything that surprised you in the response uh, to to your speech?
0: Well, I'll say that that in the arena and around the convention as a whole, the response was nothing but Support and excitement. Uh, you know, I wish I could have bottled up the the love and the energy that was in the arena. Yeah, it was as, it was as, tremendous. As, I mean, as I, was I was there, speaking. Yeah. and it was one of the first moments the e- and the, of the evening that people were sort of paying attention. Yep. because as you know, exactly, people are sort of milling around mm-hmm. and waiting in their chairs and talking as they wait for the the larger headliners uh, later in the evening, uh, and it was a pretty incredible feeling. I think after the election, it, it was difficult, not just for me, but I think for LGBTQ people, for people of color, because there was this movement, small movement in the Democratic Party uh, to sort of blame yeah. us for the Identity loss. politics. Blame, yeah, yeah, right. The invo- invocation of identity politics. One, in terms of the the, pol- the political benefit of, of LGBTQ equality and trans equality in particular, I point those to former Governor Pat McCrory of North Carolina who lost his mm-hmm. re-election largely in a race around transgender equality and bathrooms. There were a whole lot of different components to that, but we can win on that issue, particularly when we're fighting back against discrimination. But at the same time, who do we want to be, whether we win or lose? Do we want to be a party? that says that we include everyone, do we want to be a party that reflects the full diversity of America, my time on that stage at the convention was 0.03% of the convention, <laughs> which is roughly t- the same <laughs> as the percentage of transgender people who live in this country. Oh. Um, we should have... A, a, Wait, is that a real... Did you, yeah. That, wow, yeah. oh, okay. So, you know, if, if, if four minutes on stage at the Democratic convention, uh, if 0.03% of the Democratic convention uh, is too much for you... Uh, then I think you have to ask yourselves about or ask yourself about your values and whether um, uh, whether you're living the values that you're fighting for within your own life and within your with your own work and politics. So yeah. I think I think it's 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 a first principle issue for me, but it's also good politics.
3: Let's uh, quickly pivot to some policy. Um, what are some of the uh, the policy changes or advances that you'd like to see for for trans people, if you were advising, you know, progressive Democrats on the federal and state level, what would you say uh, still needs to be done?
0: Well, on the federal level, the first thing I'd say is the Equality Act. The Equality Act. The Equality <laughs> Act. The Equality <laughs> Act is a comprehensive LGBTQ non-discrimination bill that was introduced uh, actually a month after the marriage equality decision. Uh, it's been reintroduced uh, because right now uh, LGBTQ people still lack clear protections from discrimination in employment and housing and public spaces um, at the federal level and in a majority of states. Um, and so we need Congress to pass the Equality Act. That is a of the highest priority for the LGBTQ community. We need elected officials at the state and local level to pass non-discrimination laws and ordinances. We need them to fight back against the roughly 130 anti-equality bills we saw introduced this year in 30 states. Uh, Wow, 130. 130. What's the flavor of those bills? uh, A lot of them are so-called religious freedom bills, bills that allow for bills very much like the bill that Mike Pence signed in Indiana when he was – Governor, assumed to be a former governor, and that's why he jumped on the, the Trump ticket, um, <laughs> that allow for a sort of a license to discriminate against LGBTQ people. And then a lot of them are, are these anti-transgender bills like the one in North Carolina, HB2. And fortunately, uh, the Human Rights Campaign working in coalition with our state partners in Texas, we were able to just defeat, at least for the time being, a North Carolina-style HB2 bill uh, during their special session that they called, in part, to pass it. Um, and that was because transgender people spoke up. It's because the business community spoke uh, out. And some Republicans out. too, and right? And it's because there were Republicans who understand, one, discrimination doesn't wear well in history, and two, legislating discrimination is bad for business.
3: Yeah, it is, I think, super heartening. And this is where I think there's there's great difference between where... This movement was in 2004, remember that, 2008, uh, that now we're in a place where even though you do have kind of a very vocal and powerful minority pushing these anti-LGBT bills, that there are now Republicans who are against them.
0: And, And on top of that, one of the trends we've seen over the last couple of years, we've seen Um, The last couple of legislative sessions, we've seen 100, 200, 130 anti-LGBTQ bills introduced. But increasingly, they're being introduced by the more extreme members of the Republican caucus.
3: That's right. Sarah McBride, she's the national press secretary at the Human Rights Campaign. Follow her on Twitter at Sarah E. McBride. I'm Igor Volsky, here for Bill Press. Thanks so much for listening, watching. Bye-bye.
2: This is The Bill Press Show.